Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Nicholas Hammond, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Hello and welcome to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I am John Sherburn. Usually, I'm just the the editor, silent in the background, but today, Peter and Eddie uh, have allowed me to crawl out of my hidey hole and and do an intro for you guys, so don't worry. Very soon, you'll be hearing from our lovely hosts, as well as a couple special guests, but before we get into the usual rigmarole of the show, I'm going to talk to you a bit about how you can get a hold of us. First off, if you want to find The Marvelous, you can find them at Twitter. Instagram and Facebook at The Marvelous. Yeah, spelled just like it is in the title. Real easy to find. You can also find Peter on Twitter at Peter Melnick. You can also find Peter on Instagram at Peter Melnick. And you can find Eddie on Instagram as well at Eddie9193 on the gram. On Facebook, Peter Shake It Up a bit. You can find him at Peter Melnick Podcaster. Also, if you'd like, you can drop The Marvelous a line in our email bag at marvelous at gmail.com and as always please support the show by signing up for stitcher yes and use the promo code at checkout marvelous for some of those great deals and as always you can find us pretty much anywhere you find your podcasts including but not limited to itunes spotify stitcher soundcloud google Podcasts, podbean podomatic and many many more If we're not on on the platform you use, please shoot us a message and we will make sure to get ourselves on there via RSS feed pronto. So that's pretty much it. Oh, additionally, one last little self-plug. If you would like to, if you want to hear more from me, if you like my voice, if you like the voice of, of the people, and if you like television, film, and anything else like that, please go give me and my buddy Justin's podcast a listen. We've been making it for about four months now. We got about 25 episodes out and we review television shows, movies and other media that we take in on a weekly basis. It's really fun. You can uh, we're the tuned in podcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, um, pretty much anywhere else that you get your shows. And if you'd like to find us on the socials, which I would recommend because we do have very fun social media, um, you can find us on Twitter at the tuned in podcast you can find us on instagram at tuned in dot podcast and and that's about it so please go give us a listen please give our page a view we've been reviewing some really fun stuff we've reviewed some of the the best films of the year some of the ones that are up for nominations some television shows um if, and yeah yeah that's all I'm going to start doing Watchmen, all you comic book nerds out there. I love Watchmen. If you like Watchmen, do that. And that's the end of my plug. Sorry, got to do it. So today we have some really interesting interviews, very topical, very timely. Um, Our first guest is Mike Carbonero of the Big Apple Comic Con in New York City, which is, surprise, surprise, about to have another Comic Con this December the 14th, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken is a Saturday 
this Saturday at their new location at the New Yorker Hotel on 8th Ave and 34th Street. Yeah, Peter, got that right first try. They have a large lineup of celebrity guests as well as comic creators. Um, Sam J. Jones of Flash Gordon, The Spirit, and Stargate. Got Frank Romano, Peter Scolari, Michael Uslan, executive producer of the Batman film franchise, and as well as Joker, which is pretty dope. Sad I can't be there for that. That one would be quite a fun little interview to go see. Got some uh, cosplayers as well as some comic creators, um, some very popular ones like Jim Steranko, Sergio Aragones, Joseph Michael Linsner, uh, Neil Adams, friend of the show. Go watch that episode. Definitely worth it. As well as a wide variety of other people who um, are in their own way very talented at all the things they do, whether it's writing, co- cosplaying, drawing, all that stuff. It's just a good time. Big Apple Comic Con was my first Comic Con. I went, oh, last May, maybe it was. Um, so it's uh, it's it's worth it. It's a good show. It's gotten so much bigger over the years since it first started, but it has maintained that intimate atmosphere that everyone knows and loves about it. So definitely worth it, especially if you've never been to a show before. This would be a good first show to go to, and if you've been to a hundred shows, it's still a good show to go to. So. Without further ado, we are about to get into our first interview here with Mike Carbonero, and we get to talk to him a little bit about the magic behind Comic-Con. So I'm going to let Pete and Reddy take it away and enjoy the show. All right, right now we are joined with Mike Carbonero, the man behind Big Apple Comic-Con, which we are going to be at this weekend on Saturday It is at the New Yorker in New York City. It's the brand new location for the con. And we are joined with Mike right now. Mike, hello. Hello. Hello there, everybody. So you call me the man behind Big Apple. Mm -hmm. Man behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I like Pull it away and it's still a comic book convention there. (laughs) Hey, it's still a damn fine convention, sir. And my thing about this con is the fact that I've been able to experience so much as a Marvel fan. I've been able to meet people like John Bernthal, you know, the Punisher. I've been able to meet Foggy Nelson. Oh, he's been a regular Big Apple over the last years. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's, <laughs> he is such a nice guy, by the way. He's, it's he funny. to make friends with the agent. Trust me. <laughs> One thing I learned about Bernthal, by the way, you know he used to play baseball in Russia, apparently? Really? What movie was I just watching last night? I was just watching something there. You about about Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets or something? Was he in that too? I, I don't know. There was some movie I was watching. I mean, he's just been in like all these movies along the way. He's been in amazing. He was in Baby Driver. He was in Baby Driver. Yeah, oh, that like yeah, surprised right. me. I was like, wow. But yeah, that was a fun movie, Baby Driver. So why is the Big Apple a one day show coming up, and why do we have a new play? How's that for a good startup? Yes. <laughs> Why is okay. it? <laughs> so, Big Apple has been my baby. It's been my love. It's been comic books. It's New York City. That's why it's called Big Apple. It started in the church basement. That would take an hour and how it began. It was a birth by accident with me and my friend Vinny Zerzolo. And uh, I've kept it all these 23, 24 plus years. I had, a, I, had a, I had somebody interested in it for a while. And then I decided that I wanted to keep Big Apple and make it better. So I'm changing locations to a really nice hotel, the New Yorker. It's got carpeting, it's got mezzanine, it's got it's got like it's classy, it's vintage, 
It's a really cool hotel. It's got all kinds of little rooms. I got four different rooms that we can do things in. That each one holds a couple of hundred people. I got a, two different spaces for artists and another space for the for the dealers. I got a mezzanine. I got a sound system. We can talk to people, and it's a little bit intimate, yet it's big enough to enjoy the show. And the hotel is a nice place to stay in. It's right in the heart of New York City. We got a movie theater across the street. I'm going to be doing screenings and special movies. We're trying to get some special Black Widow stuff for the April show. So anyhow, this is my prequel show. This is the prequel to introduce everyone to the show. It's a one-day Big Apple, mostly all comic books. Our big show is going to be in April. We got Jim Lee signed up for that, 2020. We got another one, April 2021. That's going to be themed independent. And we got one for April for April 2022, and that's going to be a Marvel theme. So the 2020 is DC, 2021 is independent, and 2022 is Marvel theme. Wow. That's my trilogy. <laughs> so I'm doing it, man. And thank you for having me on, and thanks for talking to me about the show. And, yeah, guys like you, you know, I, I with the fandom like yourself, I mean, you know, conventions wouldn't be anywhere without all this good stuff. And one of the things I love about Big Apple is the the people you have at this show. My favorite memory from Big Apple Con, I want to say it was 2016. I got to sit back and, you know, just talk with Eric Larson on my old show back in the day. And he's he's such a great guy. And I hope you bring him back one day because he's he shoots great. from the hip. He's super honest, but he does damn good comic books. And I love his Spider-Man. Man, is he great. I just sit him there, and the whole time he's talking to you, he's drawing at the same time, right? <laughs> I, I know we're going to be speaking with Larry Hama, and I, he said, I want to do my commissions. I'm like, Larry, you can do that anytime. I have no problem with you doing that. So Yeah, Larry and I go back, way back. I mean, I believe Larry was at one of the first Big Apples when we had them in the church basement. So, you know, that was, that was great. I actually was at a panel at another convention, East Coast Comic Con, and I was listening to Larry Hammett talk, and man, was he so seriously involved in all the things that Marvel was doing in the 80s, 90s. Man, that's a very accomplished man, besides just the artwork that he does. Absolutely. <laughs> and he's done so you much, know? too. Like, one of the, one of the little-known facts about him was in the 1970s, he, he was an actor. And he was involved, oh, I really? want to say, on See, MASH. I didn't know that. Holy cow. What was he in? He was on MASH in the fifth season, which I'm actually bringing to get signed. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I'm going to have to talk to him about that when I see him this weekend. That's great. It's one of those, yeah, it's one of those little known facts. He plays a doctor on the show and it was one, it was a one and done, but he's got the little guest starring Larry Hama. Wow. So, you know, you're talking about Spider-Man artists like Eric Larson and I was thinking about it before and I was thinking about my favorite Spider-Man artist that I've actually had at Big Apple and I've had John Romita and John Romita Jr. And I love those guys. But we had Gil Kane on the church in the church, and nice. I mean, man, I'm I remember it was really cool having Gil Kane on uh, on the stage in the church basement. This is uh, I, gosh, you know, it was just wonderful. So he yeah, does, I should have bought every piece of art that he had, yeah. but I only bought a few of them. <laughs> but you have them, you have them. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I have the memory, right? We have it. We have it in the program book. But you know, that's the thing. Big Apple has this really rich history in New York. I mean. What do Stan Lee, Carrie Fisher, Val Kilmer, Gil Kane, Jim Lee all have in common? They've been to the Big Apple convention. You know, I mean, all these. And I mean, I could go on and on and on forever. You need to fund Ben Schreiber. You know, tons of great artists and guys. Billy Tucci, my friend. 
You know, I mean, and so many guys literally got their got their start in that church basement because DC Comics used to come in all the time and check out, you know, what the guys were doing. And, you know, we used to have an artist called Apollo Smile and swear she looks exactly like Harlequin. Nice. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it, it, it's just been, you know, as much as it's one of the hardest things in the world to do to run a show, it's something that I love. And so now I'm trying to build it and make it an even better, more interesting show. And let's see if I can make it a lot more fun and exciting and, you know, make it the best 10,000 person show in New York City. I can't match the Comic Con for 100,000, but I can make it intimate, fun, and something for the fans. And I can really pump it up. And I'm starting by adding Jim Lee to April. So that's going to be good. Mike, I think it's been the times that I've been to Big Apple and before that as the New York Comic Book Marketplace, which is the first I. You know, heard of that being right across from Madison Square Garden, and probably one of the first times I met you. Other than that, just about every other type of con or show, you're there. And even if it comes down to like the Chiller Theater that comes twice a year in Jersey, um, you're you're there. You're like everywhere. You know, that's funny. I'm actually starting, and I'm starting filming it this weekend. I've decided I want to do something, and it's a combination of just wanting to do it and feeling that having been to all these places and having the knowledge and the people that I know, I'm calling it comic books save my life every day. And I'm going to just talk to everyone I know and all the different variations and all the different collectors and deals and, you know, exciting this. And yeah, I'll throw in running a, how to run a comic con along the way. But I think I can create a little bit of a, a cool kind of mock you documentary about the world of collectibles and all the intangible tangibles that it, involved. I think that's a very catchy phrase, comic book saved my life, because I've heard that more than once, and nobody's got that copyrighted. Yeah, and so uh, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. I think that'll definitely be an instant eyebrow raiser and attention getter. My weight loss is partially because of uh, comic books, because I wanted to do cosplay. No, explain that. (laughs) Well, I used to weigh 330 pounds. I was a big boy, and Okay. Back in the day, I always wanted to do cosplay, but when you're a big guy, your options are kind of limited. You have the penguin. Well, it does remind me of a character that once called Herbie. Now, he was the biggest cosplay character I can I can think of. I need to see that. I need to see that. Um, it's called, he used to go to Fury, and his, his thing was lollipops. That's how he got his superpowers. Pretty crazy. Oh, Check oh, out the old Herbie HCGs. I'll find you some this weekend. Absolutely. They're pretty wild. But yeah, I used to, you know, I always wanted to do it. And a friend of mine said, you should do Star-Lord. You have his personality. You should do it. So I'm like, you know what? Oh. I'll give it a shot. And I ended up losing the weight, got down to it. And I actually have a Star-Lord tattoo to indicate those, you know, months and months of working out, doing my best and getting to that. So see? it's, it's see? inked there That's forever. Inspiration. Yeah. When I, when I see you, I'll show you. It's on my arm. So it's oh, pretty cool. Great. Comic books save our lives. Every day. Absolutely. <laughs> it's something to do for me. You know, I wake up and if I, I can't, after or before breakfast, somebody calls me, they got something to sell. I got something to do. I got to run a show. I got to put out a fire. I got to do this, that. You know, it's all part of what I've always done. It was my dad who came up with the title because I've had my, I've had my uh, crazy wild days. And, you know, he said, comic books will save my son's life. Because whatever I do, I come back to it. And they kind of just, they keep me, they keep me honest. Mike, not that I want to have you name names, but how many people? I know you got some help with with you know putting because it's a lot. You know, you're you're. I don't know. I think of a I think of a con. I, I see you. You know, running around doing stuff. You know, and uh, not the, not so much being loud, but being visible and animated, if you will. 
And uh, I think of you actually when I when I wear I have a couple of different comic type jackets and I'm like this is kind of uh, in that in that vein I mean that in a good way and I'm just like well I know he can't do everything by himself so he's got to have a few people at least so in terms of lack of a better word staff how many people do you have you know helping you out and whatnot Well I've just expanded it now because I'm trying to pick up uh, pick up the Big Apple and make it more exciting and more interesting into a new place. But I've got a couple of people. I just brought back one of my good friends, Chris McFarland, who was with me for 10 years with the original Big Apple. I've got my friend Dan Fogel. Okay, he writes the Underground Comic Book Price Guide. And he's absolutely amazing. He flies in from Ohio. He stays with me for a couple of months before the show. And now he's going to be working part-time. You know, he's been working full-time for the last month and a half on the show. And then we're going to be doing it part-time and full-time over the next year. Wow. Uh, and then I've got my friend Cindy Kong, whose husband is Brian Kong, one of the best sketch artists that I can imagine. So I'm building a bigger and better staff. I cannot do it alone. I have learned that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that would be a quick way to burning yourself out or whatever, right? Yeah, I'm actually looking for a new guy, a kind of liaison with like the movie, the movie agencies and some of the agents, you know, somebody that... You know, Youthful, exuberant, and ready to rock. So I'll be finding him, though. Now, before we wrap this up, one of the people that you had mentioned that you have had at Big Apple Con, and I've seen the photo proof of it with Eddie and the man himself. I'm, of course, talking about Stan the Man. What was it like doing a show with him and having him there and his presence? You know, uh, I'll tell you a Stanley story. This is it. So this is like in the 80s, and I'm buying and selling art from Keith Giffen, okay? And somehow I'm in the Marvel offices, and I'm in the elevator, and they're standing in the elevator in Park Avenue. And he goes, looks at me, he goes, you're going to be going places, son. You're going to be going places. And I looked at him, wow, Stan Lee is telling me my ego is charged up. And I realized, like, 30 years later, somebody said to me, you know, you were in an elevator when you said that. And I mean, I didn't realize. I just started laughing. I never got to go until then. I mean, it was just—he was really like that. Everything he said was just really kind of a little bit funny and and, and, and interesting. And he, he he made he made he made it just you know to be around him was just was just special. I mean, because of our love for everything he created, had a hand in. But um, he actually did something really cool when I had him in 2012. And I made a deal with his agent. I said, look, I want to walk you around the room and just say hello to talk to my dealers for a few minutes. And he did that. And we took little pictures and walked around. And then I had a special event the night before where he came and told stories and things like that. I mean, it was just great. I mean, you know, I'm so glad that I was able to bring that to New York and have something special. And uh, and the thousands of people that were at that really found that to be, you know, I still get people telling me how, how, how happy they were that they had that time to spend with him. I mean, he's, you know, our rock star, you know, our Robert Plans of Led Zeppelin or, you know, Tiger of the Stones, whatever you want to call it. He's that guy. Well, I do have to tell you, Mike, that that is a memory I have of meeting Stan Lee at the, and then it was called the New York Comic Book Marketplace, I'm going to say six years ago when he was only 89, but still spry and, and being yeah. whisked in and out and that kind of thing. And just for that, I don't know, two and a half seconds, I spewed out whatever I thanked him for. And between me See? and my, my, uh, my wife's, uh, cousin's husband who got in the picture with it and this shot just happened to be that we're shaking hands and that I will remember forever wow. that's great that really makes me feel good I mean yeah of course you do all this stuff for profit and to be involved but you know 
when you get people tell you cool things that happen, you make you made a you know you make something uh, fun happen, and you give a good memory to somebody. That's all that counts sometimes. And I got to tell you real quick, also, I've mentioned it on a previous podcast episode that the other Stanley encounter that I witnessed was at one of the Super Mega Fests in Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, and it was always like the weekend before Thanksgiving is that he was there. Stan was there for the weekend, both days, I assume, but it's Sunday afternoon and you've got cosplayers hanging out in the lobby as what they do all three days, no matter where they are throughout this super mega fest. And here comes this old man wheeling a small suitcase with a hat on. And in front of him is what definitely looks like a bodyguard of some kind. And he just weaves his way following the bodyguard from the elevator, through the lobby area, and out the revolving door. And when I say hide in plain sight, he's not noticed, he's not stopped. And the couple of people I was talking, was hanging out with, I said, did you just see that? That was Stan Lee. And they went, oh my God. And then they ran after like he was the Beatles. Yeah, you know, I remember when he went to that mega fest show, because that's around my birthday, and I always in framing him. I always go to that show. Yes. My friend Ken Lawrence runs that show. I always enjoy it. But, uh, yeah, that was cool. I remember him being there. And I'm like, what's he doing at this show? It was a little smaller than what he was used to. But, you know, he made a guarantee, so to speak, and everyone came to see him and get their autograph. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah, Stan made it special. Well, I'll tell you, for Big Apple, I've got some plans for 2021 and 2022. Yeah. Uh, with some real special guests that I'm trying to bring to make something real exciting and create some more memories in New York City for comic book fans. So now, Mike, before we go, how can people get a hold of the Big Apple Comic Con on social media? Just come down to the New Yorker Hotel, 34th Street, 8th Avenue. It's a one-day show. It's going to be Christmas. We're giving away toys, comic books, tons of things. But, of course, the website is Big Apple CC for Comic-Con, BigAppleCC.com. It's all there. Uh, just go Big Apple Comic-Con, and people will find it online. And just come to the New York on a Saturday. Say hello. Introduce yourself. Come down to the new, you know, check out the new hotel. I think you're going to love it. We're going to have a great time for the next couple of years in New York, man. I promise it's going to be great. And if, the Beatles, a splendid time is guaranteed for yeah. all. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I saw on a social media post for the Big Apple Comic Con that this is going to be held at the same venue or the same building that was the Daily Planet in the Superman movies. So, um, well, I think so. It's something like that. Yeah, it looks like it. We'll go with that theory. Hey, okay? good enough. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of my PR guys got a little too uh, excited about it, but nevertheless, it does look like that well you know and what it could have been it's going to be you know one of these that you mentioned is going to be a dc theme so it's a perfect fit and when you get to the marvel one it could be you know yeah. the daily bugle yeah we, yeah well, we're actually going to try and get the bat signal you know on it <laughs> we're going to see if they'll turn out the lights that evening and do something special in april we're working on that theory see so, if, so if it's going to be fun oh i have two special dc guests coming to this show i'm michael Uslan, the executive producer of the joker move i, I love mean, that guy you know, is going to be there. I mean, and he's as he's even more comic book fan than I am in so many ways. Besides the fact that the guy's you know uh, so successful with what he's done, but he just wanted to come to the show to talk to everybody to sign his to sign his book. So come down and say to Mike and his son Paul Levitt, who was the president of DC Comics way back, will be there as well, talking and doing some panels with us. So we're really you know we got some of the historically important people in the business. Being at the show this weekend. 
I actually ran into Mike on the streets of New York uh, during New York Comic Con weekend, <laughs> and I imagine I made him feel like a million bucks because I just go, Michael Uslan. <laughs> Cause I get, he, he probably doesn't get that, you but know, I, he, you know he wakes up feeling like a million bucks and two million when you do that. And no, how many billions now based on Joker alone? Oh my god, is that crazy? It's in, you know the whole story with Joker, right? In the clock, it says the same time from the beginning at one point, and it's all a dream. I don't know yet, but it's a great film. Absolutely. <laughs> so now, once again, Mike, big thank you, and we will be seeing you. This weekend. I don't know why I pointed for the audio Great. podcast. A follow up, man, with Jim Lee. Maybe I can get an interview before the show and see if you could call in for a bit. How's that sound? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate Great, it. Great, guys. Thanks so much for promoting Big Apple, and I'm going to try and make it something that you can be proud of. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You as well. Big Apple forever. And another big thank you to Mike for the interview. If you'd like something longer, something juicier, something that lasts more than, you know, 10 minutes, uh, sustains you. Well, we got a good second interview coming up right now. Um, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. His name's Spider-Man. He's relatively popular right now. And we got to talk to the first legitimate spandex wearing Bad Guy Taron rendition of Spider-Man. We are lucky enough to have uh, an interview with Nicholas Hammond today. Um, and Nicholas Hammond has been... He puts out good content. He's a really nice guy. And it's a really fun interview that talks about not only his time as Spider-Man, but his opinions on Spider-Man currently. His opinions on the cons he's gone to, the people he's interacted with. And it's just another great interview, as always, here at The Marvelous. So, without further ado... Nicholas Hammond. We are joined right now with the very first person on television and on film to be able to wear the spandex, be the webhead himself, Spider-Man, Nicholas Hammond. Nicholas, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on with you guys. It's great to be talking to you again, Nicholas, because as you recall, we met for the first time, and you gave us some nice uh, interview at the uh, Super Mega Fest recently in Framingham, Massachusetts. So great to talk to you again. Yeah, that was that was really fun. I really enjoyed doing that. It kind of gave me a it gave me a taste of how great those things can be. And I'm 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 hoping to do another one in London and one in Germany uh, in 2020. And uh, it's it's really gratifying to see how many people still love that Peter Parker and Spider Man character from that original. TV show, so oh, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's very, very rewarding for me. No question. I think that was probably one, if not the first time you you did a a con. Yeah, I, it was. I've done. I did one. Well, it wasn't really a con. It was a. It, it was like a celebrity signing in Hollywood, but it was in conjunction with the Sound of Music with my other Sound of Music siblings from that movie because we had a book that we that had just come out called the sound of music family scrapbook so we were there to sign the book so uh so it wasn't exactly like your normal con and it wasn't a thing with you know sci-fi and and uh you know like and comic characters and like like the framingham one was and like i guess the new york one is and san diego and those big ones so it was so to answer your question no that was the first one of those I'd ever done. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I also was able to get to the Q&A session that you did for that half hour or so at that same Super Mega Fest, and really great stuff. You 
well-received by there. You had someone dressed as your Spider-Man character iteration. Have you seen that uh, that uh, that costume, that version, uh, much at all? I hadn't. I hadn't really. But the, And then I met that guy afterwards when he took it off. I hadn't realized he had a great big full beard, which you <laughs> yeah, couldn't <yeah>. see under <laughs> the Spider-Man suit. It gave him a very manly-looking chin. Uh, oh, yeah. But he knows <laughs> amazing suit he had. Amazing suit. I love the costume for the mirrored lenses. It's such a cool look that is in all the different yeah. versions of Spider-Man. You never really get to see, and I want to see it again. It's just such a cool look to it. I always liked that, too. You know, there was a movie with Paul Newman uh, done in the early 70s called Cool Hand Luke, mm-hmm. and the bad guy in that movie never took off his mirrored sunglasses. You never saw his eyes. And when we were trying different things for the eyes for the Spider-Man suit, and we had all kinds of different you know versions they tried, and I said, let's, let's go with mirrored lenses. And I always liked them the most. The problem with them was, on a hot Los Angeles day, if we had a lot of physical stuff to do, they would steam up inside, and I couldn't see anything. Yeah, yeah. So they then started experimenting with putting little tiny pinholes and, and little ways of trying to ventilate them. And uh, so it was a it was a it was a work in progress, always working on those those eyepieces. Well, I would ask too, uh, Nicholas, in thinking about what we're going to talk to you about, and I didn't get yeah. to ask it uh, previously, is that it might not have been as common maybe as it is now, and I guess budget has to do with it, and maybe physicality in terms of um, a person's actual physical size and, and shape that. You actually did get to play both characters, Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Although in some instances and other situations, it would not necessarily have been you as Spider-Man. Well, that's right. I mean, look, as you say, uh, there were were several considerations. One is, of course, insurance. I mean, they're not going to have me do anything that is potentially quite uh, dangerous because if I get injured, it shuts the production down and then they lose a lot of money. Um, Secondly, you know, there are people out there uh, who can do that extremely physical stuff better than me. I mean, the guy we got, he was a trained circus performer. He was an acrobat. He was incredibly agile. uh, And he was used to working on high heights. He had been a high wire trapeze artist as well. So it made sense. Um, The other reason is, you know, time-wise, which again comes down to budget, when they want to crank out a one-hour show every seven days, so much of the um, screen time was as Peter Parker that what we ended up doing was the A camera crew and the director would be with me all the time shooting all the Peter Parker stuff. A B camera crew would be out with the stuntman shooting stunts. And then anytime Spider-Man actually had a real scene where he interacted with other people and spoke and people had to speak to him and he speak to them, that was always me in the suit because I never wanted any other actor to not be able to work with an actor. Yeah. I ne- I didn't think that would be fair for them and I didn't think it would make the scene as good. So I would say I probably wore the suit maybe, uh, you know, 30, 40 percent of the time. And and the stuntman wore the suit probably 50 to 60 percent of the time. And and so that way we were able to juggle, you know, the hours, the shooting hours, uh, plus the risk factor, plus uh, just the efficiency of getting everything shot in seven days. 
Well, that's the other, yeah, part of the other thing, too, that made me think a little further into it is a scenario where it would be you as Peter Parker, a stuntman in a Spider-Man suit, and you wouldn't know it wasn't you kind of thing. And also, possibly, a third option of there being a Spider-Man interacting with regular people while not hanging upside down, suspended from somewhere or whatever. And wait a minute, they're not actually hanging upside down? They don't walk on walls? Stop it. (laughs) Yeah. But but I, as I say, I, I'm disappointed any time he actually spoke, spoke to, I mean, look, sometimes in a fight, if it's, you know, oom and grunts and moans and things uh, where he's fighting other stuntmen. No, I didn't bother coming in to do the dialogue. But there are some scenes in the series where he's just actually carrying on a conversation with other people. Uh, and, and that was always, always me. And of course, as you may know, if you remember from the series, there are a couple of times where you reveal his identity, and obviously it's me in the suit when the when the when the mask comes off, and, yep. and you see it's me. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we did. I did as much as I could in the suit, but I I didn't try to be silly about it. I knew that there was some stuff I just couldn't do physically as well as a stuntman could. Well, before I forget, and it was part of the uh, Q and A back again at Super Mega Fest, and it, it was a, a letdown or a, a, a sort of a heart wrenching thing. In the sense that after it was all done shooting, the question I believe came to, came was asked to you: Whatever happened to that Spider-Man suit? Yeah, I know. And as I said, I did not keep them, and I've regretted it ever since. I think I had five of them hanging up in oh, my trailer. Wow! And when we and when we finished shooting, I just got in my car and went home. And you know, I had obviously with twenty twenty hindsight. I would have kept them because the people who did get a hold of them, you know, they're fairly valuable now. And you see them every now on eBay and, you know, my eyes pop when I see what people are asking for them. But I I would have just liked to have had one as a souvenir. I I had a few things that were precious to me. I mean, the whole crew, uh, one guy on the crew was very good at making stained glass and the whole crew got together and chipped in the money and, he made a beautiful stained glass window for me of the Spider-Man face. And I still have that. And, you know, so those, those things were personal to me and meant something because they came from the people I've worked with. Um, but yeah, I wish I'd kept the suit to be honest with you. And having had five of them. Yeah, that was, that's amazing. Yeah. And again, amazing. amazing. Uh, Yes. Just, that's the immediate word that comes to mind, very apropos and spectacular web of even (laughs) web of that's right. (laughs) But when when the series ended, it only really lasted one season, but there was a lot of rumors, urban legends going around, and John Trumbull wants to know, was there really a planned crossover at the time with the Incredible Hulk series with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby? Well, let's put it this way. It was an era in which a lot of crossovers were happening. I mean, the $6 million man was doing stuff with the bionic woman. And, you know, you would get an actor from one series and then he would appear on a different series from the same network. And because we were both CBS, uh, Bill Bixby and I were talking about, wouldn't it be cool? Um, In actual fact, we did, we ran over two seasons, but you're right, it, it ran sporadically. So if you added up the number of episodes, it was no more than a season. But we actually ran over the two years and our numbers were great, you know, with yeah. the ratings. Uh, when we first started, we were the highest rated pilot in the history of CBS. And so Bill and I were convinced the shows, both shows, were going to keep going. 
And we were talking about it. And we said, you know, when we get picked up for the next season, let's go in and pitch this to the network. Wouldn't it be a cool idea if you came on my show or I went on your show or both? And of course, Bill died. And the show didn't get picked up. So that was the end of it. So as far as the rumor, it, 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 was, it was being talked about, but not at a network level. I right. mean, that was going to be the next step. And, and I, you know, it was one of my many disappointments because I had great respect for Bill as an actor. And I thought it, you, you could get some really interesting scenes between Peter and Dr. Banner, you know, and, uh, and we just, it was one of those ideas that was a good idea, but we never got a chance to do it. And you really didn't think in terms maybe of how, well, of course, how these two would meet and not necessarily stick with any comic book storyline. And maybe you, as your non-superhero um, ego, uh, alter egos, don't know who each other really is until later, that kind of thing? Yeah, because I think with both of our shows, um, you know, and, and for better or for worse, some people loved this and some people didn't like it. But for better or for worse, uh, both my series and his, there was a there was a network choice made uh, not to stick to the comic book format of having all the bad guys be, you know, kind of comic book monsters and and um, uh, supernatural creatures, but to have them be real people, to have them all be based in reality. And so, I mean, my bad guys were all drug dealers and, you know, smugglers and mm. uh, people involved with nuclear waste and stuff like that. Newspaper so publishers. We, 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 what's that? And newspaper <laughs> publishers. So, um, so the point is, is that we were already bending the rules considerably from what the kind of classic Spider-Man Stan Lee comics had been. And so I don't think it would have been, as I say, I mean, the best analogy is, is, um, is, uh, Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman. Yeah. I mean, it's basically taking two shows in which there is a very similar premise and um, and blending them, you know, with with an overall objective that, that you're, you know, that, that that would be up to the writers to just give some kind of a problem, some kind of a of a crisis that needed to be solved that involved both Peter and Dr. Banner. And they somehow join forces not knowing that the, each of them has this special power, you know? So I think that would be quite interesting. Anyway, it didn't happen. And I'm sorry it didn't happen. And on top of that, I believe at the same time, while it's a part of the DC, the distinguished competition, CBS at the time was airing Wonder Woman as well, correct? That's right. They were doing Wonder Woman as well. Uh, and, and Wonder Woman, you know, and again, that was a breakthrough show. I mean, now we see the film and, you know, everybody says the film is great and it is great. And, you know, a kind of a, um, you know, a, an example of, you know, feminism and female power and all that stuff, which is all true. But of course, Linda Carter was doing it way back then and doing it really well, I thought. What gets me, though, is we also could have seen the first ever Marvel DC crossover on, you know, on the screen with Spider-Man. The Hulk well, you could have and in, her. In, that's right. In fact, somebody has done that on YouTube. Somebody just obviously themselves fooling around where they've done a mashup of my show and Linda's show where, you know, Peter Parker is rushing to save Wonder Woman and then he turns into Spider-Man and then Wonder Woman, you know, he's throwing her golden ropes around. And But they've somehow intercut 
moments from both of our shows and, and made a little storyline out of it. You can see it on YouTube. And you look at it and you think, well, yeah, that's actually pretty conceivable. I mean, you, you that's not too far from what you would have actually ended up doing. And it's kind of cool to see also because the fan community online is absolutely insane with what they can pull off. You know, they've been doing these yeah, things called... Yeah, I know. Deep, they've been They're doing, amazing. They've been doing deep fakes lately, which are they'll take video footage of something and superimpose on the actor another actor's face. So you've been seeing recently. Really? Yeah, and it's it's really wild. Like you can see the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer with Tom Holland, except his face is replaced with Tobey Maguire's. And I'm waiting for oh, the wow. day someone does one with you as, you know, the <laughs> current one. It would be so cool. I'm waiting. Let me know when that happens. I'd love to have a look at that. Yeah. I'd like to see me in one of those movies that has $30 million worth of a film <laughs> rather than a tiny little budget we had. Uh, that would be very cool. So I'd like, to, I'd like to be superimposed in there for sure. Well, one question that we got from one of our listeners, David Anthony, was, would you reprise the role of Peter Parker, Spider-Man, for a either live-action Spider-Verse film or the Into the Spider-Verse animated movie sequel. Yeah, sure, I would. I'm very proud of having been the first Peter Parker and the first uh, the first Spider-Man on film. Uh, I- I'm very proud of it, and I-, I think it's a great legacy. And I'm I'm really thrilled that it, it triggered you know this this uh, franchise that is now so hugely popular all around the world. And uh, and you know I-, I would I would embrace that. I mean, if there was an opportunity, if Sony felt or the studio felt that in any way it made sense to bring me in for a cameo or, a, or some kind of recurring role or, you know, some kind of some kind of role of, of whether it's, you know, now Peter older or Peter's father or Peter's uncle or Peter's boss or mentor or whatever. I don't know. I remember I that it would be a really fun thing to do. And yeah. frankly, I think the fans would find it really fun. I think I remember the moderator of the panel you did at Super Mega Fest did ask about, you know, if there was a reprisal that you would be Uncle Ben. That would be cool. Oh, that's right. He <laughs> said that. Yes, he, that was his idea. Fine with me. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, 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 I, you know, up until now, because Stan Lee has been alive, he's always been the one that's done the cameos in those movies. But now that Stan is no longer with us, you know, if, if Sony decided that it was kind of a fun idea... You know, for me to do it, well, then I think it would be, too. It's totally their call. It always bummed me out with the Batman movies that they never had Adam West reprise, like, or do a cameo in any of those. I want to yeah, see you in so one of the too. Spider-Man, you know, movies. Well, thank you. I, I, I mean, I, I do get an awful lot of um, things on online and social media of people saying just that. And, um, you know, I maybe someone at Sony someday, they'll have the brainstorm think, well, that's a no-brainer. But until that happens, you know, I can't. There's nothing I can do about it. That has to come from them. And uh, I, I just hope it does because I think it would bring real. A re, it would be a real tickle of delight for the audience. Yeah, and it's again, you know, just paying respect to the the trailblazers. Well, the legacy. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, the legacy. That's right. I, I agree with you. So, so who knows? I mean, actually, now that I've just worked with Sony with in the Tarantino film. Uh, I, a few of the executives there have actually talked to me about, oh, yes, and you were the original Spider-Man and blah, blah. And I keep saying, yeah, that's right. I was. So let's just see whether the light bulb goes off over there. 
And speaking of Tarantino, James Hickson asks, did Tarantino ask you a bunch of questions about being Spider-Man while you were on the set of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Not while I was on set, but but before I was on set. He was actually the one. I mean, if I hadn't played Peter Parker, I wouldn't have been asked to be in that movie because he was a huge fan of my series. And he had found, you may or may not know this, but, you know, uh, outside of the U.S., that series ran cinematically in movie theaters uh, or, or the pilot ran as a feature film. And then subsequently, uh, the two parters that we did, the one in Hong Kong, uh, and there was another one where we, they they just basically put two episodes together. And so they were released as three films around the world. So, I mean, the interesting thing is, is everyone in America thinks I was the first TV Spider-Man. But for, if you go to France or you go to Japan or you go to England, everybody thinks of me as the first motion picture Spider-Man. Because when they were little, they all went to the movie theaters to see those shows. And Quentin actually found the 35-millimeter print in England of the pilot. He found it that still existed. Somebody had it in their house. He bought it from them. He brought it back to Hollywood. He got it completely cleaned up and remastered. And he screened it for a week at his movie theater in Los Angeles that he owns called The New Beverly. And um, someone someone said to me, you know, he sees – I walked past the theater and there it says Nicholas Hammond starring in The Amazing Spider-Man. And I said, gee, I didn't had no idea. You know, I'm a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino's. And so um, somehow the word got back to him that, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm grateful. He, you know, you screened it. And if you ever want to sit down and talk about Peter Parker or anything, you know, that would be cool with me. And sure enough, he, they got the call and saying, no, Quentin would love to meet you. Would you come in? I never, I had no idea he was even making a movie. We talked and we talked about Spider-Man for about an hour. And then we talked about movies in the 70s and we talked about doing Westerns, which I'd done a lot of in the 70s. And then he said, have you ever heard of this guy named Sam Wanamaker? And I said, well, yeah, I do vaguely know who he is. And he said, well, here's a DVD. Have a look at this. And then I left and I was in the car going to the airport and my manager calls and he says, well, you've just been offered the role of Sam Wanamaker in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. So it all really came from Spider-Man, as I say. I mean, I would have had no clue whatsoever that Quentin Tarantino was even aware of my existence if I hadn't found out that he had gone to all that trouble to screen theatrically in a movie theater my TV pilot. So, you know, that, so really I owe, I owe that, that job on that film to having played Peter Parker. And, and that's a true story. It's so I wouldn't have, you know, so I didn't I didn't audition, I didn't screen test, I didn't do anything. And as I say, he didn't mention it to me, he didn't have me read lines. We never even talked about his movie. <laughs> but obviously he you know, he just wanted to have me come in and have a look at me and and I he obviously in his mind thought I think this guy would be pretty good as Sam Wanamaker. And the funniest thing is Tarantino is a big comic book fan as well and one of the oh, things, yeah. you know, a lot of people were saying they want to see him do a Star Trek movie. Forget that. I love yeah. Star Trek, but I want to see him do a comic book movie. I feel he would do a bang up job with like street level vigilantes. Give him a Spider-Man movie. I don't care. Give him something. It'd be cool to see because I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'd be down I couldn't for agree more. Having and having seen how unbelievably imaginative he is and creative he is. 
I think put him in that world and, and you know, it would be the sky would be a limit. Give him a hard R heroes for hire. I think that would be a really good movie to see. Just nothing but Kung Fu That's and people wet. getting punched. <laughs> well, he loves all that stuff, as you know. Absolutely. But he also likes, he also likes there to be something else going on underneath it, which, you know, is the secret to all of his films. I think they all work on three or four different levels. And, um, I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think we're, you don't need to know much about the Manson family and Manson murders to still get what that movie tells you about what it's like to work in the film business. You know, what it's like to be an actor, what it's like to be on a film set, you know, what it's like to live in Hollywood in the 60s. You know, that in itself, you know, I think he's recreated brilliantly. I love and, his um, use of music and, is incredible. And I can and I can say it because I was there, so I know, you know, and it was it's wonderful. Yeah, his use and of, I, I don't I can't speak highly enough of him. His use of music in the movie especially and right down to utilizing oh. the bumpers from KHJ Los Angeles. I've I've listened to the soundtrack oh, yeah. God knows how many times on Spotify now, but it's he got it down perfectly. I've never experienced it, but yeah. like, it made me feel like I was there. He had a hundred hours of KHJ and he used to play it on the set while we were filming. I mean, between scenes during setups, boom, all the, all the speakers would come on and, you know, and it would be the KHJ jingle, the ads, and then music. So you got to hear- he, had, he had had his, he had had his sound department. They've gone out and they'd found a hundred hours of original 1969 KHJ recordings and uh and you know he we listened to them all day every day while we were filming yeah so we knew that music by heart one of the things i noticed on the soundtrack as well was when the uh when they played mrs robinson it wasn't a clean version yeah. it was a radio version that you're hearing on there and it was so cool to hear that well and- all of the versions when you think about it they're all just slightly off center yeah. i mean like you know the rolling stones out of touch Yeah, he runs a track that was a test track in which you hear Mick Jagger's voice, but the actual orchestration and the actual arrangement of that version is from another singer's version who did it. So nothing. And, you know, and he does he does he does um, Joni Mitchell's the the circle song, but he doesn't use Joni Mitchell. He uses Buffy St. Marie. You know, and she does this kind of up peppy version that he plays while while Sharon Tate's driving her Porsche. You know, so nothing is like right on the nose, you know. And when he does Mamas and the Papas California Dreaming, he does the Jose Feliciano version. So that way, it's like never like, yes, bang, right on the nose. You know, it's a scene about this. So let's play a song about that. It's always just kind of slightly left of center. And I think that's very cool. Um, Eddie is a uh, radio disc jockey and he does a lot of like 1970s, 1980s music. And as you're naming off all these names, he's politely nodding like, yes, I do know that one. It's fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, yeah. I you, you, really just, good. Yeah. you just schooled me a little bit here, Nicholas, because I didn't realize that Jose Feliciano did that song as well as I only know him for, you know, Light My Fire. Yeah. No, he also did California Dreaming. Yeah. And that's the version you hear on the soundtrack. In fact, the only one that I can think of where you hear the original group, which is kind of 
terrifyingly chilling is as the Manson killers are coming up, slowly coming up the hill towards the Tate house, you hear mamas and the papas thinking young girls are coming to the canyon. And to me, it, 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 it sent goosebumps up my spine Same. the first time I saw the movie and heard that because, you know, this kind of song that most people associate with like sunny California and flower children and love, peace and all that stuff. And suddenly you think, yeah, these are young girls coming up into the canyon, but they're coming up with knives and mm. guns, you know, and it was terrifying. Yeah, th my introduction to that song was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah, I don't think of uh, Sunshine or any of that stuff. <laughs> so No, no, no. Well, when we, those of us, for example, Mamas and the Papas first came out, they were the quintessential California band. You know, no matter where you lived in America, you know, you'd hear California Dreamin' and, or, you know, or Monday, Monday, and you'd think, oh, if only I lived in Los Angeles. Because that was kind of the, the atmosphere they created. There was this beautiful, warm, sunny place where everybody was friendly and everybody was nice. And, you know, it was free love and it was kind of, you know, everybody was laid back. And and that was the that was the image they created. And, you know, if you were a teenager or if you were in your early 20s, you know, you just thought, well, that just sounds like paradise. Now we're going to go wind back over to the webhead, and one of our questions that we got from a listener, Josh Morera, asks, from Toby, Andrew, and Tom, who do you feel is the best Spider-Man that has been on film? And we're also going to exclude you on oh. that because we, we, know, we know you're good. We like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I get asked that question a lot, and I, 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 what I would say is I think all three of them brought really interesting and different takes to the role. And, you know, a all three of them, there's, there's a great deal of value in all of their, their versions. For my money, just my own personal taste, I think Tom Holland. Yes. I like the fact that he plays a very young Peter Parker and a very kind of naive Peter Parker. And to me, that kind of takes it right back to the original. And I like that a lot. And but all other... three of them are such good actors, you know? Oh, yeah. And my other little thing I always pointed out that I love about Holland's version of the character, he's got that Queen's accent. You never heard yeah, that before. True. And I never noticed that. And then somebody pointed it out. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. He does. And he's got that guy's pizza. Yeah. But. <laughs> That's right. And you just accept it because he's Peter Parker. Yeah. I know. It's cool. You know, and, and I think that's one of the great things about the role and one of the great things about the storyline is that it's amazing to me how people from almost any culture, any ethnicity, any part of the world, somehow they can relate. They can relate to that guy in the suit and they can relate to Peter. And I think that's wonderful. I mean, I love that. You know, I love that I can go to Japan and when people realize I was Peter Parker, you know, they get just as excited as they get in Brooklyn. And it's 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 amazing to me that and I, I think that's well, that's that's when you know that Stanley and Marvel has really created a really classic character. And how does it when it's you... timeless? Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, that was it. Oh, that was it. Well, how does it make you feel that you portray a character much like, you know, Chris Evans has with Captain America or even Reb Brown with Captain America, etc. Yeah. All of these characters, these superheroes. What is it like knowing that your your version of the character is the basis of someone's moral compass, their morals, their sense of doing the right thing? 
that you influence that person with your portrayal? You know, that's a very interesting question, and no one's asked me that before, but it's something I've thought of, and I think all of us who have played those characters do. I do think it gives you a sense of responsibility that you don't want to let those people down. You don't want to let them down in your own life, and you don't want to let them down in their perception of the character. You know, I used to do a lot of uh, talking at schools, and particularly inner city schools, and kids who were having learning problems when I was playing Peter Parker, because uh, schools were always asking me to come because they said, we can't get these kids to listen to us, but they will listen to Peter Parker. They will listen to Spider-Man. They respect you. You know, and I would go in and I would try just, you know, simple stuff like how important it is to read and how important it is to do your homework and how important it is to, you know, um, pay attention to what your teacher's saying. And I would leave and these teachers would say they have never sat there dead silent for an entire hour just listening to every single word. And it wasn't me, Nicholas. It was me because I was playing. I, I was representing that character. And so I think I think there's a great responsibility. I, I think about that, you know. I think about it for the fact that so much of the world knows me as one of the Von Trapp children from The Sound of Music. And, you know, and millions of people, billions of people around the world have a very strong perception of the Von Trapps of being this highly moral, decent, courageous, upright family. And you think, I don't want to I don't want to shatter that illusion. I don't want them to pick up the paper and read that I'm in jail. I don't want to pick up the paper and read that I've, you know, you know, screwed up with my life. And I think that really it, it shapes the way you do things. And which is not a bad thing. I don't mind that at all. I don't mind knowing that there are people out there who look up to the characters I've played as being guidelines in their own lives. I think it's a good thing. Particularly, I might add, as I say, with with underprivileged kids and kids who are at risk and, you know, certainly a lot of, um, uh, um, you know, kids who come from very disadvantaged backgrounds, they may not have a strong male role model in their life. They may not have a lot of people around them who are giving them good examples of right versus wrong. And that's where these shows, I think, can be enormously important. You know, I always used to say when Peter first gets bitten by that spider and he realizes he suddenly got this power, he's got the strength of 10 people, he's got this agility, he could easily use that to rob banks. He could use that to become the greatest criminal in the world. He's got to make a moral choice. He's got to decide what am I going to do with this thing that has been thrust upon me that I didn't ask for, I didn't want, but now I've got it. So the fact that every single week people watching that show, especially young people, are seeing in front of their eyes somebody who has been given this tremendously powerful weapon. And every day they have to face the choice of how do I use this? Do I use it for good or do I use it for bad? And I think that's, again, as you say, that's that's moral compass time. So I feel I feel privileged to have been in that position. Well, now, Nicholas, that you've gotten yourself out to at least one con and got to see firsthand how much appreciation and admiration. I loved it. I um, loved it. Do you have more lined up? Anything in the works your, uh, as your schedule permits well, now? Well, as or? I say, people, people have talked to me about doing the, the London one, which I think is in January. There's one in, uh, in Germany later in the year. And there's one called Chiller that yes. uh, they, they, 
we're in talk. I can't remember where Chiller is or when. Uh, Parsippany, New Jersey. Oh, is it? Parsi- and what, do you know what month it is? Uh, they usually do two, at the end of April and the end of October. Well, I think it's the April one that they're talking to me about, so I'm 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 really looking forward to doing that because I, as I say, I had such a good time in Massachusetts, and I just want to meet more people. And for anybody listening, those of you who are Brady Bunch fans, I'm sorry I disappointed you in Massachusetts that I didn't have any Doug Simpson pictures of of bashing um, Marsha's nose, but I will have those pictures when I get to Chile. <laughs> That would be great. Eddie, we're going to be going to Chiller, aren't we? Yeah, it looks that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, cool. We'll see you there. Now, we are, uh, at least I've been a frequent uh, visitor to that to that show, and uh, that's a three-day event. Usually get there on the Friday night. Right. Cool. Yeah. Well, see you, at, see you in New Jersey in April. Mm-hmm. Now, around the same time as Spider-Man 77, in 1978, in Japan, Supaidaman ended up going on to television screens throughout Japan. And I'm curious to ask, or curious just in general, I don't know, but did you, were you guys aware of that version of the character? And Not until years later. No, I, did, I never knew about that at the time they were making it. I only knew much later. So uh, that wasn't on our, on our radar at all. Were you peeved, though, that he got a gigantic you know, robot to ride in and you didn't? Because that's kind of a cool thing. Free- <laughs> It is a very cool thing, but at the time, I was really just perfectly happy to be puttering along as Peter Parker in our show. Yeah, but I mean, you can get to places faster with that gigantic robot suit, you know? Just saying. That would be cool. (laughs) That would be very cool. I agree with you. Well, maybe next time. (laughs) So with the dune buggy that (laughs) came out of the comic book, right? The sand Yeah, the Spider-Mobile. Yeah, Spider-Mobile. That's right. Yeah, or Spider-Mobile. Well, I guess after the Batmobile, everybody had to have a mobile. Yeah. Definitely a 60s thing. Well, now thing listen, with the guys, is there anything else in particular you want to ask me? Because otherwise I'm going to have to uh, sign off. I think that about wraps it up for both of us. It's good to know we're going to be okay, seeing you good. more in the future. And uh, and thank you again well, for what we'll you've done. We'll see you in New Jersey. My, that's yeah. my pleasure. And and just I hope I hope if the if the chiller people invite me, uh, and I think they will, um, you know, then I hope everybody on the East Coast comes and sees me i went to college in new jersey and i look forward to getting back there oh very nice now before we go how can people get a hold of you on social media uh they can get a hold of me on twitter uh my handle is nicholas ham one and uh please uh, follow me and you'll find out where i'm going to be and when and uh i would i would love to uh i would love to hear from you all right once again nicholas thank you for doing the program today my pleasure So now, for The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Nicholas Hammond. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Another big thank you to Nicholas Hammond for being on the show with us today. Wow, guys, what a journey. Two good interviews, two great hosts, and your mighty trusty editor, me, doing the wraparounds. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today to The Marvelists. Um, If you want to know how to get a hold of them again, you should have listened to the beginning. You can also find it in the description below, which I take a long time to craft, hone, and articulate. So please, please give us a shout out, give us a follow, give us a listen, give us a share, comment, like, subscribe, what have you. And tune in for the next episode of The Marvelous coming to you very shortly. 
Um, as always, and as always, have a nice rest of your night, folks. As Eddie would say, Excelsior! <laughs>